The theology of the Reformation states that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, all for the glory of God alone. We've been going through this over the last few weeks in our build class. Next week we'll celebrate the Protestant Reformation together because it is a celebration of the gospel itself. Justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. The basis, the foundation of that truth, of this Reformation theology, is the written word of God. We confess the gospel of justification by faith alone, according to the scriptures alone. But if that's the case, if this is true, that we believe this based on the scriptures alone, well, then why do some who claim to believe the scriptures deny that doctrine? If we claim to believe it based on scripture, why do some who claim to believe the scriptures deny the doctrine of justification by faith? The Roman Catholic Church claims to believe the scriptures, and yet it condemns anyone who teaches justification by faith alone as a heretic. Why is that? The Church of Christ denomination claims to believe the scriptures, yet it teaches that we are saved by believing and by being baptized. And the truth is that in our very own community here in Oxford, there are likely several thousand people who claim to believe the scriptures, and yet they are trusting in their own good works for salvation. So if we believe the scriptures teach justification by faith alone, then why don't all who believe that share our belief in justification by faith alone? Now, one answer to that question is that the scriptures must be rightly interpreted. The scriptures have to be interpreted uh, to, so we understand what they actually teach. And in order to rightly interpret the scriptures, we need to understand just what kind of book we have in the Bible. What is the Bible? What kind of book is this? See, the Bible is not an instruction manual that guides us through a step-by-step -step process of how to be saved, though it does make us wise for salvation. The Bible is also not a moral code that tells us how to live, though it does include God's commandments. The Bible is also not a systematic theology that just lays out God's attributes in an orderly fashion for us to know him, though it does reveal God to us. But the Bible is none of those things. What is the Bible? Well, first and foremost, the Bible is a story. First and foremost, the Bible is a grand story. It is the story. It's the story of redemption. It's the story of the creator God intervening on behalf of his rebel image bearers to save them from their sin. And it's a true story that speaks to each one of us and it tells us that we are part of the story too. And here's why this matters so much as we get into our passage this morning. If we don't read the Bible first and foremost as the story of redemption, then we're bound to get the gospel wrong. In order to get the gospel right, we need to get the story right. In order to get the gospel right, we need to get the story right. You can open your Bibles to the book of Galatians. Our passage this morning is Galatians 3, verses 15 through 25. Continuing our series through this book called No Other Gospel, and we find ourselves in the middle of some very dense terrain in Paul's Argument. I feel like we're in the middle of some thick, overgrown woods. We just need a machete to cut our way through it right now. That's where we are in Galatians. At least that's how I feel trying to study it every week. Let's remember the big picture first. Galatians 2, verse 16. 
Paul says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is arguing for in Galatians. Long before Martin Luther argued for this during the Reformation, Paul argued for the doctrine of justification by faith alone. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We are justified, made righteous, declared, declared righteous by God by trusting in the work of Jesus Christ for us instead of doing a work ourselves. This is the gospel doctrine that was being undermined in Galatia, which caused Paul to write this letter. Well, chapter 3 begins the substance of his argument, where he begins supporting this doctrine, and he's advanced three arguments so far to support the truth of justification by faith alone. I just want to review these together. In verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3, Paul argued from the Galatians' reception of the Spirit. He said that you receive the Spirit by faith not by works. And because the Spirit is a sign of acceptance from God, this proves that justification is by faith and not by works. So their reception of the Spirit shows the doctrine of justification by faith. Well, then he moved to the example of Abraham. Abraham was counted righteous by faith and not by works. He wasn't justified by his obedience to God. Instead, Scripture tells us that he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, when Abraham put his faith in God's promises, God declared him righteous through that faith. And then third, the demands of the law proved the necessity of faith. Paul showed how the law demands perfect obedience and that the law brings a curse on anyone who doesn't obey it perfectly. And because none of us do obey it perfectly, justification must be by faith. It cannot be by works. So these are Paul's arguments so far. Again, thick terrain, dense terrain, the reception of the Spirit, the example of Abraham, the demands of the law, all support the doctrine of justification by faith alone. This morning Paul advances a fourth argument. The story of redemption shows that justification is by faith alone. The story of redemption shows that justification is by faith alone. In other words, if we follow the storyline of the Bible we will realize that justification is by faith and not by works. So let's see this for ourselves this morning as we look at what Paul writes. Listen to the word of God, Galatians 3, verses 15 through 25. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, 
so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. All right, get your machetes out. We're going to work through this passage together. In our passage this morning, we see three distinct chapters in the story of redemption. And these chapters show us that justification is by faith and not by works. We can break this down by looking at chapter 1 as the promise. The title of chapter 1 is the promise. The title of chapter 2 is the law. And the title of chapter 3 is the fulfillment. The promise, the law, and the fulfillment. So let's start with chapter 1, the promise. In our culture today, we use the word promise to describe both conditional and unconditional commitments. So I might say to my children, if you clean your rooms, I promise we will go to the park. Now I'm using the language of promise there, but I'm introducing conditions, right? My promise is only valid if the conditions are met. However, if I say to my children simply, when I get off work today, I promise we will go to the park. Well, in that case, there are no strings attached. There's nothing that they need to do in order to go to the park with me. The obligation rests entirely on me to fulfill my promise to them. It's an unconditional promise. Well, the book of Genesis tells us that the story of redemption runs through the family of Abraham. God appeared to Abraham, and God promised to bless him and bless the nations through his offspring, But the question we need to answer is, what kind of promise was it? Was it a conditional promise, or was it an unconditional promise? I want you to turn with me this morning back to Genesis 15, so we can see this for ourselves. Genesis 15, in this chapter, we read of a covenant ceremony between God and Abraham. It was admittedly a bloody affair. God instructed Abram to bring several different animals to cut them in half, and to lay them out in such a way that there would be an aisle to walk down in between the halves of the animals. Now what's the point of that? This arrangement of the animals was a symbol that underscored the weight of the covenant that was being entered into. When somebody walked through the aisle, through the animal carcasses that had been sacrificed and divided on both sides, the person walking through the aisle was stating, may this be done to me, if I break the terms of this covenant. May what happened to these animals happen to me if I am unfaithful to the obligations of this covenant. That was the meaning of the animals being sacrificed and split in two. Now normally in a covenant ceremony, both parties would walk through the aisle of the animals. And as they did that, they were bringing the obligations of the covenant on themselves. But this covenant ceremony between God and Abraham was not like a normal covenant ceremony. After Abraham arranged the animals, Genesis 15 tells us that God caused a deep sleep to fall on him. And then we need to look at what happens in Genesis 15 15, verses 17 and 18. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. 
So what happened there? We understand the smoking fire pot, the flaming torch, these were symbolic manifestations of God's own presence. They were precursors of what we see in Exodus with the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. These are manifestations of God's own presence. And what happens? Well, the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch pass through the pieces, but Abraham never does. God alone passed through the animals. God alone took on the obligations of the covenant promise. This was an unconditional promise. Abraham didn't need to do anything except to believe that God made the promise. Now with this in mind, look again at Galatians 3, verses 15 through 18. We'll read it again. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So two things about those verses we need to see about that covenant with Abraham. First, we need to see the recipients of this promise. The promise that God made to Abraham was not made to Abraham alone. It was also to his offspring, to Abraham and to his offspring, his seed. Now, it would be natural for Israel to view themselves as the seed of Abraham. They were, after all, the natural descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But look at what Paul says. He says this word offspring was not referring to all of Abraham's descendants generally, but to one descendant specifically. He says to offspring, to one who is Christ. Now why does Paul say this? Why why would Paul conclude that this word offspring, which could be translated plural just as easily, why does Paul say it's singular? Because Paul's following the story of Scripture. You see, this wasn't the first offspring that God made a promise about in Scripture. After Adam and Eve fell in the garden, in Genesis 3.15, God made a promise that a singular offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. This seed of the woman is the one who would redeem God's people from the curse. And this promise to Abraham is a continuation of that promise. This singular seed of Eve would be the singular offspring of Abraham. So when God made the promise to Abraham, he was also making it to Christ. And the promise would not be fulfilled until Christ came. The promise wasn't fulfilled when he gave it to Abraham. It would not be fulfilled until Christ came. Both Abraham and Christ were the recipients of God's promise. Now stay with me. We need to notice the priority of the promise as well. Paul uses this analogy of a man-made covenant, which once ratified is permanently binding. In our day and age, think about the binding nature of someone's will. Right? If someone has left his entire inheritance to his oldest child in his will... That will is legally binding no matter what. When that person passes away, that legal will takes priority over everything else for determining what happens with that inheritance. Paul's point is just from the lesser to the greater. If even human covenants are binding like that, how much more is God's covenant binding? How much more is God's promise binding? And then with his eye on the next chapter of the story, Paul applies this to the relationship between this promise with Abraham and the Mosaic law that was coming. Paul's point is simple. The promise has priority over the law. The Mosaic law didn't modify the promise. Listen, if it had, if the Mosaic law, which came 430 years later, modified the promise, that would be like me going to my kids 
after saying I would take them to the park when I get off, and then later on adding a condition. Later on saying, if you clean your room. That's not honest. God would not be honest to do that. That, that. Paul's saying that's not what God was doing with the law. The law was not God adding conditions to the original promise. The original promise was made to Abraham and to his singular offspring based solely on God's unconditional commitment. And it would continue based on God alone until he fulfilled it. So in other words, the promise was made by grace alone. The promise was made by grace alone, and it's received through faith alone. Now before we move to the second chapter of the story, I want to ask you this morning, are you adding conditions to God's unconditional promises? Are you adding conditions to God's unconditional promises? He has promised in Scripture to forgive us of our sins in Christ. But are you adding the condition of proving that you deserve forgiveness to that promise? He's promised in Scriptures He will work all things for our good. Are you adding the condition that you need to be faithful in your spiritual disciplines for that promise to be true? He's promised to sustain our faith to the end. Are you adding the condition that you need to live a life of good works for that promise to be true? Are you making his unconditional promises contingent on your own spiritual performance? If so, you're missing the joy of the promise, right? Understand the nature of God's gospel promises to you this morning. They are unconditional promises. He alone walked through the sacrifices. He alone has taken on the obligations. There are no ifs attached to his forgiveness. There are no ifs attached to his blessing. There are no ifs attached to your final glory. His promises are not contingent on our works. They they are simply contingent on his faithfulness to his own promise. They are the overflow of his love, given on the basis of his grace, because of the faithfulness of his character. Any works we do are simply the response to that promise, not because we need to do something to make that promise valid for ourselves. So this morning first, when we think about the promise of God in Scripture, and all the promises related to that gospel promise, receive it and believe it, but don't act like your works make it valid. Our performance does not guarantee the promise. God's grace guarantees the promise. This is where the story starts with the promise of God to Abraham, unconditional based on his grace alone to Abraham and to Christ. This leads to chapter two of the story of redemption, the law. Just a few generations after Abraham received the promise, his great-grandchildren, the family of Jacob, found themselves living in Egypt. Within a few generations of their arrival in Egypt, they find themselves slaves to the Egyptians. And the story of the Exodus is the story of God redeeming the descendants of Abraham out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. Now one of the key events in that story is that when God brought Israel out, he brought them to Mount Sinai and he gave them the law. He gave them a written code that governed their moral, civic, ceremonial life together. Now, over and over again in Galatians, Paul is stating that we are not justified by that law. We're not justified by keeping the law. Again, 2.16, no one will be justified by works of the law. 3.2, you did not receive the Spirit by works of the law. 3.6, Abraham was not counted righteous by obedience to the law. 3.10, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the law. Over and over, that's Paul's argument. We are not justified by keeping the law. 
And now he's saying that the law did not modify or void God's original promise to Abraham. And all of this raises an obvious question. Why then the law? Why then the law? What was the law for? If the law is not necessary for justification, why did God give it to us? If the law doesn't change the promise, then what is its purpose? Those who heard Paul were probably saying, Paul, it sounds like you think we should just discard the law altogether. If the law is not for salvation, if the law is not for justification, then what is it for? This is what Paul asks in verse 19. Why then the law? And he gives a stunning answer to this question. Look at verse 19. Why then the law? The ESV says it was added because of transgressions. I want to give you an even more literal translation to better understand what that because means. Some of your translations might say it this way. Why then the law? It was added for the sake of transgressions. It was added for the sake of transgressions. Now this is a shocking thing for Paul to say. God's purpose in giving the law to the people of promise was for the sake of transgressions. Now what does that mean? For the sake of transgressions. Now I think the interpretation that we most naturally assume is that he means the law was given in order to restrain transgressions. For the sake of transgressions means that there was transgression and the law came in to restrain it. That's generally how laws are meant to work, right? I'm I'm restrained from going 100 miles per hour on the interstate because we have laws that give a speed limit and we have police officers who can give me a ticket. So we might think that Paul's saying God added the law to keep Israel from sinning for the sake of transgressions. But we have to recognize something this morning, that that cuts totally against what Paul's been saying in Galatians this whole time. And it goes totally against the history of Israel. If this is why God added the law, it did not work. It didn't work, right? The history of Israel is not that they were sinful, and then God gave the law, and then they sinned less. That's not what happened, is it? No, the history of Israel is that God gave the law, and they sinned more. The law didn't restrain transgression in Israel. It increased transgression in Israel. And that's the point Paul is making. He says that when he says the law was added for the sake of transgressions, he, mean, he means the law was added to increase transgressions. Now, if that sounds unbelievable to you, why would God give a law to increase sin? Well, first, let me point you to Romans 5, verse 20, where Paul says it explicitly. Romans 5.20, now the law came in to increase the trespass. The law came in to increase the trespass. He says it explicitly there. As shocking as it seems at first, the purpose of the law was not to restrain sin in Israel. It was to increase sin in Israel. Well, how can, how can this be? How can a holy God do something like that? How could a holy God give his people a law that increases their sin? Paul makes two points to explain how this can happen. First, he points first to the inferiority of the law. Verses 19 and 20 are very baffling verses in the New Testament. Paul says the law was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. What Paul's referencing here is obscure, but it is biblical. God gave the law through angels to Moses And Moses served as an intermediary between God and the people. Now what Paul is doing 
in saying this is he's contrasting the way the law was given with the way the promise was given. How was the promise given to Abraham? Abraham received the promise from God himself. Israel, on the other hand, received the law through angels given to an intermediary. There was no intermediary between Abraham and God, but an intermediary was required for Israel. And here's Paul's point. The law, in the way it was given, shows it doesn't have the same weight as the promise. It was inferior to the promise. It's it's the difference today between a face-to-face meeting and a text message. Right? One is weightier than the other. One is more significant than the other. The law's place in the story of redemption is inferior to the place of the promise in the story of redemption. These are not two equally weighty things. The promise has weight. The law has less weight. It's inferior. That's the first thing we need to see. And then second, Paul points to the imprisoning effect of the law. The imprisoning effect of the law. Look again at verses 21 through 23. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Okay, here is why God would give a law to increase transgression. To reveal to us our natural state of imprisonment under sin. He did it to show us that we are imprisoned by sin. Here's the reality. Ever since Adam and Eve fell in the garden, every single human being has been born under sin. We are all born enslaved to the power of sin's desires. But the thing about it is that apart from a written law, it's kind of like we're born into an invisible prison with no real knowledge of our actual captivity. We don't know that we're slaves without the law. It's not unlike the situation of Truman Burbank from the movie The Truman Show. All right, unbeknownst to Truman, his entire life from the moment of his birth was lived in an artificial world controlled by a TV director and filled with actors and actresses pretending to be his family, friends, and neighbors. Now, as long as Truman wasn't aware of this, he was happy in that world in which he lived. He was content. But certain things started to happen that started to reveal to him the truth. An old girlfriend who had moved away suddenly reappeared. A light fixture fell from the sky. The radio commentary followed the movements of his vehicle. A rain cloud was just over him and no one else. And each incident, as these incidents pile up, they helped Truman begin to realize the shocking truth that his entire world was actually a prison. He didn't know it, but he was in prison the entire time. He hadn't seen it his entire life. Well, this is kind of what the law does for us. It reveals to us the prison of our sin that we've always been living in. Do not lie, do not steal, do not covet. These commandments wake us up to the reality of our situation. You see, here's here's what happens. The commandment comes to us, and we hear it, and we fail to keep it. And again, another commandment comes, and we hear it, and we we can't keep it. And another one comes, and, and we want to break it. Right? These laws come, and as they come, and as we hear them, and as we fail to keep them, the prison bars that are around our hearts become clearer and clearer to our minds. Through the law, through our inability to keep the law, 
we are led to the conclusion we are actually slaves. We're captives. We're in bondage. We can't not sin. This was true of us all along, but God gave the law so that we could see the prison bars ourselves. Why would God want to do that? Why would God want us to see the prison bars of our enslavement to sin? Well, not so we could try to find an escape for ourselves, not so we could find a way to bend the bars through our own efforts, not so we could dig ourselves out in self-reliance. No, God gave the law to reveal our imprisonment to sin so that we would turn to him in radical, dependent faith. As verse 22 says, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. You see, the law was not given to save us. It was given to show us our need for a savior. It was not given so that we might be saved by works. It was given so that we might turn to God in faith. This is, according to Martin Luther, the chief purpose of the law to reveal that we are enslaved to sin and the only way we can be saved is to turn away from ourselves and be saved by the God of the law. I want you to consider this morning, how are you using God's law? When you, when you read your Bibles and you come across God's commandments and God's instructions, how are you using God's law? Are you using it for the purpose for which he gave it to you? Or are you misusing it for something it wasn't designed to do? You see, the law was never meant to deliver us from sin. The law has no power to free us from sin. The law cannot provide us with salvation from sin. God didn't give it to us for that purpose. And if we try to use it that way, we'll find that our sin is just going to increase, not decrease. And yet the law does have a purpose in the story. It reveals the sin we need to be saved from. It reminds us we can never save ourselves. It shows us our slavery so that we might turn to the only one who has the key that brings us freedom. And so my encouragement this morning is listen to the law so that you might see your need for salvation in Jesus Christ. Listen to what it shows you so that you can turn to Jesus in faith. And this brings us to the final chapter of the story, fulfillment. Fulfillment. You might have noticed in our passage how many times we see the word until. Verse 19, until the offspring should come. Verse 23, until the coming faith should be revealed. Verse 24, until Christ came. This is the language of anticipation. Like any good story, as the plot develops in the story of Scripture, there's an increasing anticipation for resolution, an increasing anticipation for fulfillment. After the promise was given to Abraham, the law was given to Israel, the Old Testament story carries forward the tension of promise and law to the very end. God's promise continues to be restated and developed. And at the same time, the law continues to be broken. We read the Old Testament story looking for the arrival of the seed and at the same time lamenting the bondage to sin under the law. And the Old Testament story closes that way. It closes with the promise unfulfilled. And it closes with Israel still in bondage to the law. And then, after 400 years of silence, the New Testament opens with the announcement that the time of fulfillment has finally come. The Word becomes flesh. The Son of God is incarnate in the Virgin Mary. Jesus Christ is born into the line of Abraham. He alone never breaks God's law. He dies on the cross to bear the curse of the law for sinners. He rises from the dead as a victorious proclamation of forgiveness of sins in Him alone. In Him, 
all the nations are blessed. In him, God fulfills his promise to Abraham and his seed. And this fulfillment completely changes our relationship to the law. Listen to what Paul says in verse 24 25. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So Paul illustrates the change that has taken place with the coming of Christ using this ancient figure of a guardian. Some translations say tutor or pedagogue. We don't really have this today. I think the closest thing we have today is the image of a harsh headmaster in a boarding school. You guys can probably think of a movie where that figure is there, a harsh headmaster in a boarding school. In a well-to-do family in, in this time, parents would entrust their children to a guardian who would watch over them and would teach them how to behave. But these guardians were not kindly babysitters, okay? They were harsh disciplinarians. The only comfort a child would have under a guardian is it's not going to last forever. Someday I'm going to grow up and be free from this guardian. That's how a child would think. Well, from the perspective of the story of Israel, Paul's saying that the law was like that harsh disciplinarian that ruled over Israel until the proper time. Israel was under the supervision of the law like a child would be under the supervision of a guardian. When Israel sinned, the law brought the strong discipline of rebuke and judgment. And because Israel was enslaved to sin, the law's strong arm of discipline was exercised continually against Israel. The rebuking voice of the law reigned over sinful Israel throughout the Old Testament, constantly sinning, constantly being rebuked by the law. But, just as a guardian was only in place until the child's fully grown, Paul says the time has come for us to be released from the guardian. The law has done its job of showing us our need for Christ, but now that Christ has come, we aren't under the guardian anymore. Now, by faith in Christ, we don't live under the condemnation of the law. Instead, we live as those who have been justified. We live as those who are counted righteous by the God of grace. You see, this is where the entire story of redemption leads from the promise through the law to the freedom of faith in Christ. From the promise through the law to the freedom of faith in Christ. That's the story. From promise through law to faith in the fulfillment. But we need to understand this morning that this freedom doesn't belong to us automatically, it only belongs to those who have come to see this story as their own story. It only belongs to those who have placed their faith in Jesus for themselves. That the promise might be given to those who believe. And so this morning I want to call you to own your place in this story of redemption. Find your place in this story. Make this story your story today. Find your place in the story of God's promise. Into our sin-broken world, the one true God has made an unbelievable, unconditional promise to save all who trust his plan of redemption. There's nothing you need to do to receive this promise. It's based entirely on his grace. Rejoice in the God of promise this morning. Find your place in the story of the law. Because God loves us and he desires for us to know our need for salvation, he's given us commands that we can't keep. You have not kept these commands because you can't keep these commands. Embrace that. Find yourself in that story. Understand that we are all slaves of sin and we need a Savior. Listen to the law this morning and find your place in the story of fulfillment. The Savior God 
The Savior that God promised has come in the person of Jesus Christ. He has purchased forgiveness through his death and resurrection. Whoever trusts in him is declared righteous by God and is brought into the freedom of faith. This is the fulfillment of God's promises. Place your faith in Jesus this morning. And church, finally, let's embrace the purpose of this freedom we have in Christ. We have not been set free to live for ourselves. We have not been set free just to return to the sin that enslaved us. We've been set free to bring glory to the one who freed us. We've been set free to live for him who died for us. We've been set free for the joy of giving ourselves away as he gave himself for us. So may we live for the glory of Christ, not as a return to the law, but as our heart's response of his love for us.